Welcome to the Don't Overthink This podcast, where we explore and connect ideas without overthinking it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. Dr. Jackson, I'm curious, when would you recommend a leader or an organization to not work with analysts? So, you know, the, I, I would say there's several different types of situations in which leaders and organizations should not work with analysts. And it, it requires a degree of honesty and reflection on the part of the leader. The, the first and most glaring time is when the leader is already committed to a given course of action. So if, if one knows what they're going to do and, and one is committed to doing it, um, the results of analysis will, will just be a, a source of anger and the person won't change the mi their mind because they're committed to doing what they're doing. And the analysis will just irk them uh, and, and make them slightly less certain. So there, there's no value in that. The, the other time is, you know, analysis takes some amount of time. So I, I think that the, the critical question is, does leadership want a ballpark figure of the situation quickly, or does one want a detailed assessment of the situation after a, a period of time that, that probably will be longer than what the leader wants to pursue. And, you know, the critical question is, is, is the increased granularity and detail of the estimate worth the extra time? And are they truly open to the information contained in the analysis? When, when do you think they should not use analysis? I think some of the time constraints particularly are, are, are valuable one on your second uh, case there. And I think probably comes down to maybe a further nuance that largely depends on what kind of analysts you have at your disposal. Because um, some can give a very quick answer and some will typically take a very long answer to do to provide something. So I think that's a key thing. I do find that the time when the leader or organization can be like, you know what, I just don't want whatever the answer that they're gonna give me is, and this is gonna bother me. I find it interesting you know, obviously, if, if any organization or leader is self-reflective enough to say, I don't want the analysis because I want X, Y, Z, or I want something to happen, or I know what they're going to tell me and I don't want to hear it. It's an interesting thing because I don't even know, I mean, how many people, how many leaders or organizations today would be like, you know what, screw the data. I'm doing what I want. I think it kind of happens, but no one I don't think would ever say it like that. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you know of anyone who encountered someone? So, so I'm an analyst and I say it all the time, right? I, I have all of the capacity to do as detailed of analysis of any decision that I want to make. And I all the time am like, I'm not basing this on the analysis. I'm basing it on what I want on a personal emotional level i want what's cool or fill in the blank and and i'm not going to base this on analysis therefore i'm not going to waste my time doing the analysis so i do it all the time i don't i don't view that as a negative right i mean to me um i think i think charles lindblom in the 1950s talked about the science of muddling through and that what happens in organizations is most of the time they're simply muddling through. 
And, and I don't know the degree to which analysis on that muddling through is worth the time and effort to do the analysis that, that, you know, analysis serves two sort of corner solutions. It's, it's very good at, at identifying catastrophic decisions like, oh my goodness, you know, if you do this, the whole, everything will explode and, and uh, we'll, we'll have uh, just carnage along the roadside on, on this decision, or it, it can develop some notion of an optimal solution, but most organizations aren't operating at optimality or catastrophe. So within within the huge bound of muddling through, you know, maybe just going with your gut and uh, having passion about what you're doing is is better than being, you know, spending six months finding a way to be one and a half percent better. I know that we're probably unique cases in this that I think maybe we would be, hey, you know, we're going to do what we want and we're maybe self-reflective in some ways in this space, especially as it comes to analysis. But I don't know if I've encountered any leader that I think would feel comfortable saying, hey, we're muddling through, so we're just going to do whatever and uh, I don't have a plan or my plan is to not have a plan or my plan is just to muddle through and it's really not worth doing this other work. So yeah, just kind of keep doing what you're doing and we'll figure it out. And, you know, let's revisit this in X weeks or months or whatever like that until we figure it out. I think there's like a belief that the performance that needs to happen, even if you are muddling through, is that we have a plan. We're going to analyze the crap out of it. We're going to use data because data is better than not data and gut-based decisions bad and all these sorts of things. And so I, I see that disconnect. It's almost like there's probably some, there's probably like two extremes. There's like a, a leader who doesn't know any better, who just kind of always this is shooting from the hip and being like, hey, I, I, I do what I want. I do gut-based decisions, blah, blah, blah. I'm not well aware enough of this data thing to even like bother. Then you get leaders who sort of like get beyond that and you get into a phase where, hey, data is important. I'm supposed to be doing this. This is the culture of how we make decisions. And this is better than what I'm doing today. And I have my issues and blah, blah, blah. And then you, and most people I think live in that middle zone. And then there's like the other extreme where people are aware of that whole continuity. And then they decide, yeah, you know what? We are just muddling through. So um, whatever, <laughs> you know, I don't want the analysis decision here, but I'm aware of why I'm doing it, right? I just think, at least off the top of my head, how I would characterize maybe some of the, where people land on some spectrum of this issue. Yeah, I think, you know, to me, there's like, a, as soon as you said it, a red flag went up in my mind. Um, when you said that people feel like this is what they're supposed to do as the leader, and there's a performative aspect of what they're doing, that that to me is always a red flag for critique, that, you know, they're play acting the role of the leader in being in nothingness. Jean-Paul Sartre talks about a waiter and how this waiter is is just pretending to be a waiter, that the the actions of the waiter are too precise and the, the person is just acting a role as they're actually executing the work. So, so anytime one is engaged with, this is what I'm supposed to do, so I'm play acting this role, I would say, stop doing that uh, immediately. But you'd be better off just uh, being silent and, and uh, stoic and stop, stop the charade. 
Um, on the on the other part, right? I think that the you know whether this is strategy, whether this is operations, or whether this is sort of the the role of analytics to inform either of those things, is that there's sort of a, a strategic intent of analysis and and one form of analysis which i i don't really subscribe to much i i get the impression that we're in agreement on it is there's a lot of wasted effort on increasing the precision and the accuracy of an estimate about the future i mean the future is uncertain so at at some point refining the assumed uh, accuracy of the forecast is is foolishness. Um, the, on the other side, and it's it's a radically different approach, is that if if we are in fact muddling through, we shouldn't be trying to maximize accuracy. We should be trying to maximize our our ability to be responsive and to adjust, and that analysis can inform the response space and prepare people in as they're muddling through in an uncertain future to be more effectively responsive to the shifts that they are experiencing. So typically in the analytics, when it's taught or discussed, you talk about descriptive, talking about the past, and then they have predictive talking about the future. And it tries to predict the future and then prescriptive, which says like what to do. How would you characterize sort of this maybe how to be agile in the situation analysis. Does that fit in any of those categories or is it like a, a branch that isn't fully like really thought of? Well, well, I think it's a hybrid. I think it exists in the space between uh, predictive and prescriptive. In, in the predictive, I think that it would uh, manifest itself through doing sort of what if excursions and permutations of the analysis and, and you know, changing key elements and seeing the effect and and sort of getting the trade space available. Uh, so in, in one regard, that responsiveness is is informed by the the permutations in the forecast. Uh, on the uh, prescriptive side, it is much more what I would consider to be having backup, options, right? That that it's, you know, pe people tend to make a decision and then they plan and resource things sort of all in on, on the decision based on this is what we, you know, we, we are doing this, therefore this is what we're fully committed to. And, and I think that there's more benefit in um, keeping a strategic reserve, a, a sort of a hedge that that says you know we're we're going to pursue this but we're pursuing it with at least one eye open to the fact that we might have to pivot so um you know i i'm i'm sort of of the mindset that it's better you know to be committed and and to set your course of action but to do so strategically with off ramps that that you know if if there's a a car crash uh, up the road i can get off the exit and take the back roads for me, one of your posts was talking about decision makers and the role of analysts, like, should we be decision makers and things? And I think as we've been talking about this, I've been contemplating, and I regularly think about this as, you know, often analysts are taking sort of the position of not being a decision maker. Like, typically, it's talked about as we support the decision, we give you insights into decisions, but ultimately, we are not making the 
the decision for per se. But in some of these cases, from the analysts and stuff I've talked to, let's say, or that I believe are really good at their job, they can identify when the organization is muddling through. They can identify what I believe are more truthful understanding of what the organization is, the struggles, the realities of that. Probably tendency to lean more towards the pessimistic angle just by nature, but I think they have a more insightful view of what's going on. And when we think about when should you use an analyst or not, I wonder if it would be behoove the field to venture further into, hey, maybe we should be the ones making decisions because we have a better understanding. But there's dangers, I think, with that. I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think hearkening back a long time ago uh, when I read your dissertation, I, I think that Plato is referenced in your dissertation. Um, I think at least Aristotle, if not Plato, but um, and, and Plato's Republic, you know, it, it's one of the lengthy dialogues and it culminates with da, 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 and of course, philosophers should be the king. Yeah. So uh, when, whenever a, a group of people um, come to the conclusion that, well, the problem is, is that we're not in charge and we should be in charge. Uh, I'm always at least half skeptical of, of that conclusion. And, and I will say, you know, I, I agree with the premise that you've set up, but not necessarily with the conclusion, right? The, the premise is, is that the, the current way that analytics is enacted within an organization that analysts have a, a better understanding of strategic decisions. And I fully agree with that. Now, the, the, the critical question is, do analysts have a better understanding of the strategic context because they are analysts? Or do analysts have a better understanding of the strategic con context because they're engaged but they are not at the locus of the decision that that because they are one step removed and they are not in the hot seat they they are able to look at, at the situation more dispassionately than the person who's on the hook to make the decision and if analysts were put in the position to make the decision being in that hot seat would erode the objectivity that they once held and they would be no better or probably no worse than people who are currently doing it. I tend to gravitate more to the second category that I, I think that more of the benefit of what analysts bring is through smart, objective engagement with the problems that business are concerned with not really any of the particular tools or analytic techniques that analysts have at their disposal. Yeah, I think that position of, let's just say, whatever objectivity is created by being independent from the decision itself, but being a, an observer or explorer or however you want to position it, I think provides, you know, I think that is a key distinction in whether you want to be the decision maker and you maybe lose some of that objectivity and versus if you you know, part of what gives you the better insight is not being in that that position. But let's say that, hey, you know, I've, I, I'm an analyst at some organization. I talk to the CEO regularly. I'm like, we have a close connection. We, we, I understand the situation. The CEO asks me questions. I give them answers and feedback and stuff like that. And let's just say that the CEO just does everything I say. 
like every whim, every decision, because I, in some perspective, does that fit in one of those categories where can a person still be objective in that, in that position if the CEO does whatever they say? I don't think maybe this has ever happened in any analyst area ever, but this proposing that some CEO just loves this analyst group and loves data stuff and just does whatever the analysts say. So, so I will say, as you described it, that would be among the most dangerous situations ever created. Any time that the brains and and decisions are behind the veil and there's a puppet who is just doing the bidding of the person behind the veil over the long haul, the, the person behind the veil will, will go to a, a dark and self-gratifying place. Uh, so I, I don't think that that's a good model. I, I think that the the optimum is that the decision maker is a true decision maker and there's a proportion of decisions that align with what the advisor, the analytic advisor is saying. I don't have a, a precise number, but I would say somewhere between 68% and 82% of the time, the leader is, is making the decision that the analytic advisor is providing, but there's enough divergence that the analyst doesn't start the situation assuming that, of course, the leader is just going to mindlessly adopt what they say. I think your 68 to 82 feels about right. Maybe a little too accurate, but, you know, we can. That's a pretty broad range. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's the, I, I'm not sure. But like just generically, if I were to give a, 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 a generic range for anything, it probably would be between 68 percent and 82 <laughs> percent. So if I if I know nothing, that's the range I'm going with. I think that makes sense because, you know, moderation and direction and, and sort of how analysts think. But I think the other piece that is interesting is, you know, kind of in the area of analysis, what the sort of pop culture business direction is, is you should make more database decisions, you should leverage your analysts more. And I think that sort of like made it its way into the profession. And as a result, a lot of analysts think, I would like it if they did 100% of what I said. But I don't know if there's any perspective of saying, hey, I'm going to present 100 things, and they're only going to take 68. I think the desire is to be like, I put all this energy and effort in, you should accept it as it is. I don't know if that level of a success, I'll say, is is acceptable within the in the field. And I don't know if that is also propagated its way into business. But I think the other business side of that is that there's a belief that they need to perform, again, the performance thing of, you should do what the data says, sort of thing. And, and so I, I see a sort of, as you sort of say, kind of a dangerous game that's being played sometimes, or maybe people don't understand that it's not always about necessarily winning, but there's some in-between zone that it makes the most sense. Yeah. And then, I mean, anybody that's honest about data and analysis knows that the data can say anything. So, you know, that the notion of you should do what the data say, the, the data say what the analyst says the data should say. So it, there, there is no definitive, this is what the data say, you know, anybody that does any analysis comes to a conclusion and anybody that's ever taken a finished product through a murder board of other analysts quickly realize that in a group of 20 analysts, there's probably five 
critical distinctions that could emerge that people would do things differently or suggest a modification of approach or a modification of interpretation, a, a, a changing of the degree of whether outliers are included or excluded. So, you know, I'm not one, I'm not one that says the data say anything. I, I think that dispassioned, engaged analysts that are sincerely dedicated to their profession, like like a physician and like a lawyer who view that they have an ethical obligation to to do the their their profession ethically isn't doing something where you know it's the the notion of lies damn lies and statistics uh but but even within the 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 field of ethically produced analysis there there's always room for debate and and what the data say would would be uh perhaps categorically different depending on the outcome of that debate an interesting connection you made with the like sort of like I would say like a code of ethics for some professions, whether it's like doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever. If typically I think within the organization, if they feel that what's being done isn't up to their professional standard of what they're looking for, like uh, say the hospital isn't treating patients correctly, um, the what the organization's doing is against their their legal, you know, ethical requirement. Any sort of, you know, maybe the books are being cooked and the finance person's like, hey, I, this is against the code of ethics that my profession lives by. So the obligation, I think, typically is that the the person in that profession can either say, hey, you know, blow the whistle and say this is a problem and we need to fix it, and or isn't obligated to leave if nothing changes. Do you think analytics should live in the same space? Like should, should, and then what would be the guidelines? Would you think? I'll, I'll give a uncharacteristically brief response. My, my brief response is absolutely they should. So I, I cannot imagine a profession that has the at least potential power that analytics has and also the ambiguity of what is happening and the fact that so few people understand what it is and how it operates and, and what good, quote unquote, good looks like within any profession that it would be nearly impossible for anyone outside of the profession to police it, the profession must have a strong internal ethical commitment and expectation which analyst currently does not, right? So, yeah, so, so that's my next thing. It's like, I don't yeah. think anyone's doing that. There. No, I, they're, they're not. And it is an area, and I've seen it happen. Um, you know, there, there's, there's tremendously good analysts, and I think the majority of analysts are good. But the current situation is such that it's very much like traveling medicine shows and and uh, people selling elixirs of life that that are just you know codeine and and snake oil and within the profession if you know if medicine allowed uh, these snake oil salespeople to to continue to go uh, around it would erode the confidence in in medicine the only way that people have some notion of of confidence in medicine is is the fact that it has a, a very strong internal code of ethics, analysis is much the same way. It, it doesn't have one now. We're in the snake oil salesman area of 
the timeline of the development of this as a profession, but the profession has an ethical obligation. And, and I think that over time it will develop it. You think you'll develop it mostly through schools or through like professional societies or some combination? professional societies. Absolutely not through schools. It'll be through professional societies and, and perhaps changing the incentive structure, right? I mean, it's it, as long as there's money to be made through the malfeasance of analytics, there'll be incentive for analysts to, to go for the quick money. I think it's a major challenge of, of in the field and makes the question of when should you use analysts even more challenging because it comes down to so much of who are the analysts that, that you're willing to trust. Right. Uh, and there's some that are very good and some that are obviously just run around and preach lots of things that are, I would say, irresponsible. At best. <laughs> yes, yeah. At Irresponsible best. is is the best way that that can be characterized. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so, so based on one of your posts, I I am curious, given the, the sort of complexity of all that we've discussed so far, do you think that incorporating cake day would help resolve some of these problems? The, the short, I'll, I'll give a brief answer, similar to yours. Uh, absolutely not. I think that there's this idea that, hey, to solve all these problems, if we just gave people cake or we had a holiday party or we went on some team building thing, it's going to fix a cultural issue or it's going to fix how people work together or it's going to make work better at some organization. It is merely a well-intentioned idea that has some like root truth of, hey, people doing things together, building connections, um, having shared stories is empowering and part of what makes us human and helps us connect and, and do things better and treat each other better. But when that's 0.0001% of your entire work experience, the broad other piece of the time is going to be what your true culture is. And the idea that we can just, you know, put everyone in a room and say, hey, uh, for example, Hey, all analysts, let's be ethical today um, and let's talk about ethics. And then, but hey, when you're out there on the road, there's other incentives and you're going to keep doing it. It's just sort of a, a game of show, things that we believe are supposed to be important. And I think most people who do these are well intentioned. They want, they know something is missing in work, they know something is missing with how the culture is. And they think that this is going to help, but I just, I've never seen it work ever where it's actually changed anything. How about, have, have you ever had a cake day experience? Alter your experience with with, with the work culture you, you've been in? Well, well bef before I do, I have a couple, I have a, a, an assessment and then a question, and then I'll answer your question. Yeah. So first of all, the response that you gave was in no way brief. So you, you may Sorry. have intended to give a brief response, but but you didn't. And that beautiful, elaborate response that you provided, is that truly just a justification because you hate cake? I actually like cake a lot. Um, okay, well, good. Because I, I didn't know if secretly you hated cake and your problem with cake day is not the superficiality of, of what was going on, but but in fact, your deep hatred of cake, uh, that, that was really, this was just an elaborate uh, rationalization. If anything, the best part about cake day is the cake itself. And, but the everything of surrounding cake day drives me insane. See, that's funny because I would say that the best part of cake day is the day itself. 
we exist, baby. <laughs> this is the best part of cake day is the day. Yeah, I, I we'll agree. We'll agree to disagree on that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I agree. I've I've never seen it be um, really meaningful in in its in its effect. That that um, it's it's sort of like if if there's camaraderie within the group and they have cake day, they didn't need cake day to form the camaraderie, and in the absence of camaraderie, the the cake day will not establish it. So what's your idea behind, why do you think people do it? They think because we it should be done? Yeah, I mean, I, to go back to the, the beginning of the episode, right? It, it's, it's part of that performative, oh, we're supposed to build esprit de corps within the organization. And, and what we do is bring in, uh, you know, probably now cupcakes rather than cake because people have uh, germaphobe issues and nobody wants a communal cake. So uh, the, the cupcake day... Uh, if you will, is is just part of the performative aspect of organizational reality that that we enact largely because we feel like we're supposed to do these types of things. So if I were to rebel against cake day, or I guess have you ever rebelled against one of these events and then have have you been like pulled aside to say like, hey, you know, you should really participate in these things? I can go a step further. I, I uh, in a previous employment opportunity, uh, they had cake day, which I was subjected to for years, and and I single handedly made the executive decision when when I was in charge to kill cake day. So I've I've lived that reality. Is it still dead, as far as you know? Well, who knows? I mean, that's you know, uh, zombie cake day could be uh, going around now that I no longer at that place but uh at, at one point in time i i saw a charade and i put an end to it what percentage of the pop population do you think see the charade because i i think, think you and i we've had side conversation about we sometimes see things and feel like you know obviously you and i we reflect on a lot of things and talk about a lot of things and think deep about a lot of things and i don't know if everyone does it but how do we help others see this or not see this or even even just be aware of it, it just kind of be perplexing. So, so I think the relative proportion of people who who see this as we see it is relatively small. Um, I I think that probably, uh, you know, maybe a third of the people don't find cake day to be fulfilling. So, you know, maybe maybe a third have some sort of notion of I'm I'm not really enjoying this event, but they don't necessarily have a, a clear understanding of, of what it is that they're not enjoying about the situation, right? So I would say that that most people would just experience it and be like, well, this really isn't my thing and, and not give it too much thought. Um, I, I think that you and I are atypical in our interrogation of, of our experiences like this and, and trying to understand what it is you know, is is this a flaw, an internal flaw of of me or us? Uh, the answer obviously is no. Uh, the answer <laughs> to that is always no. Uh, so then, what about the situation is inherently flawed that I am having the correct negative response to this? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way to, to wrap up this episode as we maybe overthink cake day a little too much. Um, Dr. Jackson, it was great chatting with you. Any parting words of advice for everyone listening out there? 
enjoy the upcoming holiday season and the start of the new year. Yes, I hope everyone has great cake days in their future. Um, and if you enjoyed this, please feel free to join us over at don'toverthinkthis.net. We have multiple posts daily and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thanks.